0: Going to welcome uh, Pastor Goose to share uh, God's word with us this morning. Ah, uh, I'm testing. Okay. All right. Okay. I need it. All right. Good morning. Um. Let us read uh, God's word. For this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, from verse 10, and we'll read to, through chapter 7 uh, to verse 14. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10, and we'll read to 7, verse 14. <clears throat> Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and the bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I know at first this may seem uh, just pretty, pretty tough stuff um, because it often seems like he's contradicting what we think is, is right, um, what is better than the other. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his uh, wisdom and uh, the Spirit's work in our hearts to give us insight into uh, this truth. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that... Um, Uh, You have revealed who you are um, and who we are and the things that you do. Um, Help us, God, to learn about your truth. We ask the Spirit to stir in our hearts, convicting us, helping us to take the Word of God and intermingling it and mixing it and applying it with our our present-day realities and specific situations, God, so that we would not just hear the word and agree, but that we would uh, use this time to help it speak into our lives, and we need your spirit to help us to do that. Lord, be with me as I preach. I am not an expert at all on, on your word or on how to handle adversity, but I pray that you would help me as I um, share your word, as I preach your word, that you would speak um, through this, uh, through this sermon. Father, thank you for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I recently started, um, you know, I have a lot of favorite shows, and, um, and we wa- I watch them with Julie a lot. And, and one of the shows that just I, I started recording on my DVR is uh, um, Worst Case Scenarios, starring Bear Grylls. Grylls who also stars in uh, you know, Man Vs. Wild. I think a lot of us watched that on Discovery Channel. And um, these worst-case scenario shows, he takes certain situations, and, and, he t- and he tells you what you need to do during those times uh, that you have adversity. And so, uh, for example, one uh, episode I watched, I just started watching it, but there's a lot of episodes. And it's pretty hilarious. It's really funny. But there are also good tips to remember. Um, for example, when you're being chased down by someone with road rage, what do you do? You know, that could happen to anyone, right? It's just a matter of uh, you accidentally cut somebody off or, you know, uh, you didn't use your signal, something like that. Or um, So what do you do um, when you're being chased down by someone with road rage and they're like right on your tail? And he, says, he says, first of all, don't panic. Don't panic. Just stay calm. And like, Okay, well, there's a guy like bumper to bumper on my tail and, you know how am I going to stay, uh, not panic, but he says, don't panic, okay? And then he says, avoid cul-de-sacs and dead ends. (laughs) Okay, thanks, that was very helpful. Okay, I won't uh, go into a cul-de-sac or a dead end because if I do, you know, I'm dead meat. But in case you do, and so he goes into a cul-de-sac and this big guy in this big truck, bald head, tats everywhere, he's following him into the cul-de-sac and he says, okay, so when he proceeds to come out of his car uh, with a bat in his hand and proceeds to your car, don't get out of the car. <laughs> Not a good idea. And we're like, okay, thanks. That was very helpful. Um, but uh, it's very funny situations. Um, like another show was like, what happens when you're attacked by a dog? Um, he's like, yell commands to sit. It might be domesticated. <laughs> so he, this dog's like barking at you. He's like drooling and he just wants to eat you alive. You're like, sit, roll over. Okay, that's gonna help. Um, and he says, uh, and, and this is how he ends the scenario. He runs to a garbage can and he jumps on this huge dumpster. Opens the lid, and the dog happens to jump after him and goes right into the dumpster. He's like, "Brains over bronze." Like, all right, okay, I remember that. Um, This wasn't portrayed on the show, but this was from the book uh, "Worst Case Scenarios: Ten Steps to Survive an Encounter with an Anaconda." And uh, because you never know, in you know, in the uh, you know, in the marshlands of Orlando um, and the swamps. There may be an anaconda lurking in your backyard. So what do you do? Number one, do not run because the snake is faster than you. Number two, lie flat on the ground. So just picture that. And then number three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight together. The snake will come and start to nudge you and climb all over your body. But number four, don't move. Number five, don't panic or act afraid. Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will take your feet into its mouth and it will begin to swallow your feet first. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. So picture that, it's like, yeah, you know. But lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. (laughs) Just relax. Number eight, when the snake has reached your knees, Slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of the snake's mouth and your leg. Can you picture that? So the the mouth is right here. Take your knife, slide it into his mouth, it says, and then suddenly rip upwards, (laughs) severing the snake's head. (laughs) Okay, number nine, be sure your knife is sharp. Number 10, never forget your knife. (laughs) We may never never encounter an anaconda for sure, but we will surely face adversity, hardships, troubles, difficulties in a fallen world. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And we see it all the time. Disasters, tragedies, brokenness. We hear about it all the time. It's everywhere, and we all go through it. But many times we're caught caught not knowing what to do, how to face it, and how to trust in God. And so here the teacher in Ecclesiastes knows very well that life is full of adversity. Chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 9 is about the teacher's quest. And on this quest, uh, for the the seventh and final time, he says in chapter 6, verse 9, the verse right before our section, he says, this also is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. On this long quest for meaning, he finds that everything he's turned to for satisfaction under the sun is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You can't catch wind. We're always chasing, and we will perpetually be frustrated. Life is frustrating, is his message in the first part of Ecclesiastes. Life is frustrating. It's hard. And and the things that we turn to for meaning, it's like chasing after the wind. We can't grab it. There's toil, there's labor, there's suffering, and it's difficult. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 22, it says, What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. All his work is pain and grief, it says. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain, since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Now, this is a man who knows that there is just hardship. It is hard many times in life. Now, in 6, verse 10, in our section. He begins the second half of this book, the teacher's advice. First the teacher's quest, now the teacher's advice. How do we begin to live in light of this life that is like vapor in a world so full of meaninglessness, in a world full of adversity? How do we live? And he begins to give his advice. Starting at verse 10, we see that God has sovereignly set the times. And this is something that we need to understand When we face adversity, God has sovereignly set the times. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. So he's now teaching us, how do we face adversity? So he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. It is known what man is. He is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Man. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And what is this saying? It's saying God has sovereignly set the times, right? God has named what has come to be, right? In all these uh, sentences in this section, just, just think, what he's referring to, who he's referring to is God. God has already named what has come to be. He named things at the creation, day, night, sky, earth, seas, and so on. Whatever happens in the present, so he named all of creation, and even now in the present, whatever happens was already predetermined by God in the past. God has already determined what has come to be in our lives. He's already named what has come to be, and the teacher is wise to, to teach us that. He's named what has come to be, uh, and we're reminded in chapter 3, it says, for everything, there is a season, right? It's just, it's just there. It just exists. God has set them. For every matter under heaven, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, time to mourn, a time to dance, and so on and so on, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace, a time to love, sorry, and a time to hate, time for war, and a time for peace. God has set, has already named what has come to be. It's just the way it is, you know? And in verse 10, he says, it is known what man is. It is known what man is. He, not only has he named all of creation, but he has named man. He has named mankind, us. To give the name to a thing is to make it exist and hence dependent. He has also named us. God has known what man is ever since man began. He created us. He knows us inside out. Right? He, knows us. he knows what we're going through. He knows that we are weak, that we're broken, that we're hurt, that we're not complete. He knows, just as he knows everything he's named to creation, just as he set everything in time because of his sovereignty, he knows us. He knows, and that is extremely comforting. And it goes on that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Who is the one stronger than man? God. God is the one stronger than man with whom man is not able to dispute. He's the powerful creator of the universe. He called all things into being. He named them. He called us into being. He named us. There's no, there's no point in arguing with our creator about what has come to be. No point. He's bigger and stronger than us. You know, in, a, in, a, in our American culture, uh, it's just, we're, we tend to be very eye-centered, right, in America. Everything centers around us. You know, it's about what I think, what I want, my rights, my career, you know, what I deserve, and we demand to know everything, control everything, and solve everything. It's so eye-centered. We are the answer to everything, right? And it's all cent- life is all centered around us. So, especially in times of adversity, we go to God and we demand answers. Why, God? Why did you do that? Tell me. You know, why is this happening? But you know, the interesting thing is in other cultures, when people suffer. And face adversity, they go to they go to God and ask for redemption. They don't ask why. They don't ask what are you doing. They say, "God, help, redeem us, save us, because only you are able." He is the one stronger. There's no point in arguing with him about what has come to be. And verse eleven goes on: the more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? Arguing with God does not help. Help, for God has sovereignly set the times. The words. The more words one uses in arguing with God, the more vanity, that is, the more futility. It is wasted breath. There's no profit or gain in disputing with God. It goes on to say in verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who knows what is good for man? Again, God. God knows. We don't, but God does. He knows what is good for man in our short lives on earth. Life is short. It's vain. It's literally breath or vapor as we learned. It's like the breath you see on a winter day. Now you see it, now you don't, right? It's, it's how quickly our life speeds by, like a passing shadow of a cloud or a palm tree in Orlando. The, sh- the shadow under, just there one day, gone the next. And God knows what's good for us in this short life. It's only in God that we can find meaning and satisfaction in what is truly good. So Let's submit to his rule. Let's understand that he said everything, but he is good and he knows what is good. And it goes on to say in verse 12, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Again, the answer no one but God. God can tell man what will be after him under the sun. No one can tell us what tomorrow will bring. We don't have all the answers. We don't know the future. We don't know the outcome. God does. We don't know why God allows adversity. But that doesn't mean there is no reason. That doesn't mean there's no reason. Just because we don't know the answer doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. He knows what is good for us in this short life, so we should submit. He knows what is good. We should trust. You know, a couple friends of mine came uh, to town last weekend for for a conference. Um, Riley and Tom uh, came to Orlando for a conference, and they booked a cheap hotel because they didn't want to, because it was all in the Disney Resort area, and it's all these fancy, smashy hotels. And so what they did is they booked like a Motel 6 or something like that, something just real cheap, you know, 30, 40 bucks a night. And so I saw, as soon as they enter their room, um, they know why it's 30, 40 bucks a night. Because when you go in, uh, this is immediately what my friend Riley said Oh man, <laughs> I'm not sleeping in that bed. And he's like, There's stuff in there. And so, uh, and so he goes out to Walmart and buys his own sheets that he can sleep in in that hotel room. Why? Because he knows there's bed bugs. Do you see them? Right? Do you, do you see them crawling around? Do you see the germs? No. But it doesn't mean it's not there. And he knows that very well. In the same way, when we're suffering and going through adversity, we're like, what's the answer? Why, God? Just because we can't grasp it doesn't mean that the answer is not there. Right? God can tell us what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. God knows and has everything in control. He knows what the future holds. He knows the plan. He knows the story. He knows the big picture, even though we might not see it at times. So with all that in mind, the teacher teaches us what he knows is good for us. So he says, what is good for us in this short life? And then so he begins to give his advice. He knows what is, this is what he thinks is good for us, what he believes is good for us in this short life. And he gives two main points. These are what's good for us. The first point, because God has sovereignly set the times. It is better to face adversity than to avoid it. It's better to face adversity than to avoid it. And that's in chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, and verses 8 through 10. It's better to face adversity than to avoid it. In this section, in this main point, he goes on listing seven uh, different things about this is better than this. And he says, literally he's saying, this is more good than this. Uh, And what he and so he's saying, in times of adversity, because God has sovereignly set the times, let's choose the better. Let's face adversity rather than avoid it. Let's choose the better rather than choosing the uh, less better, the less good. But you'll see the comparison. Starting in verses one, verse 1, it talks about a good name. A good name verse, is better than precious ointment or perfume, right? A good name, it lasts. Uh, it, it, it lasts. It's it's meaningful. It it has value. It has worth, uh, not just for the time being, but through through all time. Right? It it follows you even after your death. A good name, right? Um, Perfume it fades by the end of the day. I stink. My wife tells me that. You know, even if you step outside and you come back inside, right? You immediately smell like that outdoorsy smell, right? No matter how much perfume you put on, you smell like you've been outside. What is that? It's strange, right? But it happens every day. I shower, I do everything, perfume, uh, cologne on, but you go outside, you come back in, you smell like outside. You know what I mean? Anyways, <laughs> perfume fades. Axe, deodorant, whatever. It fades. Good name lasts. It's significant, it has meaning. Right? Saying that is better than perfume. Day of, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, think about that. We would think, isn't birth better than the day of death? Um, and so we celebrate our birthdays, right? We celebrate our birthdays. We feast, we party, um, and we, we eat, we have fun, we write cards, we buy gifts, and we say, I appreciate your life. I appreciate that you entered into this world, and, and we celebrate one's birth on birthdays. But what the teacher is saying here, it says, it's better to celebrate our day of death, right? Our day of death, what? Um, why? Uh, because when we think of our day of death, the day we will leave this earth, it makes us count our days and not waste it, right? Uh, it makes us see that life is short. It makes us understand that we don't have much time left, right? And we begin to start thinking about our loved ones, things that we don't want to uh, regret doing, things that we wish we will accomplish uh, before we leave, right? House of morning, the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting, uh, Going to a funeral home is better than going to a party? Is that what he's saying here? House of mourning versus house of feasting? Uh, Yeah. We're we're reminded that at a funeral home that one day we too will die. One day we too will die. This is the end of all mankind, he says, and the living will lay it to heart. He says, keep it in mind and live your days accordingly. Right? Keep it in mind that one day we'll all be there um, unless, of course, Christ returns first, but count each day and not waste it. The house of feasting, right? What is the house of feasting? It's, it's an escape of reality. It's, if we're always going to the house of feasting, we're just wanting to party, wanting to celebrate. A lot of times it's because we don't want to deal with adversity. We don't want to deal with our, 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 the schoolwork that we have or who, what we're going to be, what we want to be. We don't want to deal with uh, our relational problems, all the adversities we face. So a lot of times... We just want to go to the house of feasting, parties, you know, hanging out, having fun. And he's saying those things aren't bad. He's just saying it is better to also keep in mind, think of to go to the house of mourning, to count your days, to cherish your days, right, to live with purpose and meaning. Sorrow is better than laughter, right, uh, and, what, and what he means by laughter is to behave in a frivolous manner, right? To, to just not care, right? To just want to just party all the time and laugh and, and, and not, once again, escape reality. But he says sorrow makes the heart glad because it pushes us to seize each day and live it to the full. Sorrow, it makes the heart glad because we realize, oh man, I need to, uh, I need to press on. You know what I mean? I need to... to uh, to endure, there's some, there's, there's, there's a reason, and, and this is what I mean. Um, you know, I've been, I've been married for almost six months now. Hallelujah, praise God, right? And it's been great. We have fun. We're always doing stuff together. We're always hanging out. It is fun, right? You're, you're just with your best friend all the time, you know, and um, but, but, <laughs> there's the but there's also times of adversity. Nobody told me that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we need to remind our young people that. We, okay, this is what we're thinking, and this relates, this is what we're thinking. In marriage, you know, it's going to be feasting and laughter, you know, everything's going to be all, you know, you know rosy and, and Disney-like and happily ever after, and I'm going to be so in love, and it's true, there's a lot of that, there is a lot of that, um, but there's also adversity, reality, hardship, suffering, right, because we are sinners, right, and there are times, though, there are times, though, when we, you know, fight. Um, especially times when i realize realized how much I've hurt Julie. What gets me a lot of times is when she when she cries, because she she, just, she communicates to me uh, that I have hurt her. I have uh, did not put her first or think about her. Uh, whether it's in what I said or what I did. And that, you know, breaks me. Gosh, you know? And uh, there are many times, though, when we argue and, and fight, and then our sins are revealed, and we realize what we've done, and that we've, uh, we've hurt each other, we've failed, we've, uh, uh, we've really hurt each other. In those times of adversity, the restoration is so much sweeter. Our motive to continue our marriage becomes so much greater. Why? Because we remember, the, we remember what it's all about. We remember the end, right? The end. We remember that God has called us together. We remember our story. We remember that God has called us to, to help each other become the man and the woman that he's called us to be. To be a part of the journey that each of us are on in becoming that man, becoming that woman. That he has given me the privilege to be a part of uh, who she's going to be. And I can help her and she can help me. And it's this looking at the goal of marriage each time we face adversity. That's what happens. And so even just the other week, realized how badly I've hurt her and 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 and, and for me that that caused me to remember, oh man, you know, my what's my goal? What's my what's my goal? You know, I'm not I don't want to live. Uh, the rest of my marriage like that, just fight and then never, you know, resolve anything. So what's the goal here? What's the purpose? You know, why this adversity? And, and, and even just a few days ago, you know, I took her hand. We're both crying. We're both sorry. I took her hand and, you know, once again, just renewed my vows. I said, and I said, I take you, Julie, to be my wife. You know, to be the one I will serve and love and, and, and encourage. And I, and I just renewed my vows to let her know that this is what it's all about. And then the restoration is so much sweeter. Our motive to love and serve each other becomes so much greater. See, the days of adversity, sorrow, the house of mourning, these things are good and oftentimes better than thinking that marriage is all just laughter and fun and it's going to be great and we're not going to, you know... Worry about resolving conflict. When we fight, we're just going to ignore it. Oh, no. you know, that's silly. Then he goes on to say in verse 8 through 10, 8 through 10, facing adversity. How do we face death? How do we face mourning and sorrow? He says, Know that the end of a thing is better, right, than the beginning, right? Looking to the end is better in the beginning, looking for the outcome, the purpose, the greater uh, reason in the end. Patience is better than being proud, right? Um, because the proud uh, are quick to get angry, right? When things don't go well, when things aren't you know happening according to our plan, we just get angry. And he says, that is what fools do, right? We just get angry. But he's saying, patience, to persevere, to look to the end, and to not dwell on former days, but to, to live in the present. The outcome in the end is worth patiently living in the present. It's worth it. It's worth our patience. It's worth our not complaining. And he says it is not wise to complain. We don't know why God allows suffering. We don't know that God... We don't know why you know, we face these times of adversity, but we know from this teacher that it is good. It is good. It can help if we face it with the right perspective. We don't know why God allows these things, but we do know this. We do know that he has sent Christ who has come to choose all these seven better things rather than the seven not-so-good not so things. Christ has come and chose those things. He's come and, 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 and pursued uh, his life for his name, he, for the name of God. He's come to pursue, the, to think of his, his day of death, to, to be in the house of mourning, to, sor- to have sorrow and grief. Christ has come and, 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 and he, was, um, he, he looked to the end of a thing. He, he was patient and, and he didn't complain about the former days but continued on his journey to what his mission was. Christ has come and cho- has chosen all these seven better things. Why? in order that in Christ, through his accomplishment, through this life, we could have access to God. Because of this life of Christ, because he endured to the end, he knew his purpose, the purpose of his life, the purpose of his death. That, that death would, be, would mean our gain, would mean our life, that, our, that we would live. And because of that, because Christ has done those things, we can now have access to God so it's not this, we just know that God is sovereign, he's in control, He set all those things. But now we have access to this sovereign God, access to this powerful God, access to this God who knows us. We have access to this God who knows what is good. We have access to a God who knows the plan, who knows the greater picture. And because of that access to God by faith in Christ, that big and great God now becomes near. And we draw near to him. We can now experience his love in the midst of All these adversities. We can now experience his comfort, his presence, his goodness, his promises in the midst of all these things that he has sovereignly set in place. We can be near God because of Christ. And in Christ, we know that death is not the final end. This teacher is thinking about death, death, death. That's the end. That's the end of man. This is what's going to be. But we know that in Christ now, death is not the final end. Death is only door the door to eternity, the end, the outcome, the thing worth our patience, the thing worth persevering and facing adversity is when, is when we will all one day be with God for eternity. That's what's worth the patience. That's, the, that's what's worth fighting through and seeking God. When one day we will all be with God for all eternity, when all wrongs will be made right, when there will be no more sin and suffering, when, we, when he will wipe away every tear. When we will finally feast and laugh, not in a frivolous way, but with substance forever because of all that we have in God through Christ. That is the true feasting and the laughter to come when we're with God and His people. No more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more tears. When we think of that end, oh man, I want to be home. I want to persevere. I can't wait to get there. I'm going to fight through adversity. I'm going to trust in God because he, we know the final outcome. We know that death is not the end, but the eternal life with God is. Second point is this. God has sovereignly set the time so we should not live like fools but live in wisdom. We should not live like fools but live in wisdom. And that's in chapter 7, verse 4 through 7 and 11 through 12. Basically, what he's saying is, let's not live in the house of pleasure. And we already talked about that. Let's not live in trying to escape the the realities of this world and just living to have fun, living to just forget our worries in life and just party on. That's what fools do, he says. Do not listen to the songs of fools. Their laughter is loud but short. It's like, you know, the crackling under a pot. You know, you light it up and it burns and then it's gone. The laughter is short. The pleasure is temporary. Rather, live in the reality of adversity. Listen to the rebuke of the wise. Live in the house of mourning, adversity, reality. It's going to be hard. There are hardships. But through those hardships, God is transforming us, molding us making us into more than he wants us to be. He's doing something through those things. So live in it. Don't try to escape it. And un- try to seek what God is teaching us and doing in those times. Just listen to the rebuke of the wise. Avoid extortion and bribery. Stop trying to just, you know, make money and, and find delight in all that. He's saying, these are all ways of escape. These are all ways of the fool who try to escape reality and adversity one day it's going to catch up on us what are we going to do for those of us who are just living life to just coast along he says wisdom is as good as an inheritance wisdom is as good as an inheritance it's it's what what happens during when you have an inheritance you're secure you're provided for it's yours right and he says, wisdom is as good as an inheritance. It's like the protection of money, right? Money can help, help us in times of, uh, of poverty, right? And in times of trouble. Money can help, but he says, he adds, but the thing about wisdom is that it preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom saves while money can't. Wisdom preserves your life. And we know that, that it's in Christ and it's in Christ who uh, we have that wisdom. It's in the gospel. He is wisdom personified. Right? In him we have an inheritance. In him we have protection. In Christ, in the gospel that brings us to God, we have eternal life. And that's what a life of wisdom is. Right? Pursuing the gospel, pursuing Christ, pursuing all that we have in him. Rather than trying to find all of that in the world. Because it's just short-lived. It's just temporary. But the wisdom in Christ, the wisdom in knowing the gospel, knowing what Christ has done and accomplished for us, that's what preserves. That's what gives us eternal life. And here's the conclusion. Because God has sovereignly set the times, we should trust him. Verse 13 and 14, we should trust him. says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Once again, what's the answer? Not me. God. God can make straight what he has made crooked. And that's coming from our perspective. We perceive that a lot of things that God has made crooked, but of course God never makes mistakes. But that's coming from our human perception. God has made things crooked. So what he's saying is from our perception, he can make straight what he has made crooked, right? God can straighten out what is seemingly crooked to us. He's a sovereign God who's made all things. Some of these things appear crooked to us. Death, mourning, sorrow, these are all hard things. We experience these things as crooked. Something's off, something's wrong, something's not right. But God is the one who can make the crooked straight. God can. I'm not saying that all our problems will always go away, that will, everything will be perfect. Remember, that's, that's, that's foolish to think that, to think that life is, is, a, is a house of, of laughter and a house of pleasure. Remember? He's like, that's foolish to think that everything's always going to be okay. No. We have to face that, that it's inevitable that we'll face adversity. But what I'm saying is this, what he's saying is this, we must trust that God is doing a greater work in the world to make all things straight according to how he wants the world to be. God is at work. God is at work. Yes, everything got crooked because of sin, because of our our fallen nature. Everything's crooked now. But God, in his love for his creation, is not going to leave it like that. He's come to redeem his people. He's come to make us whole. He's come to, to, to heal our hurts. He's come to give us our identity and our acceptance and our approval through Christ before God, God, God is not going to leave us crooked. He sent Christ to fix, to give life anew. But not only just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with ourselves, understanding who we are, finding security, finding our identity, our worth. All those crooked ways of our thinking, God has come to make those right as we understand who we are before God in Christ not only just with ourselves, but also the world. God is not going to leave the world like this. He is making all things new. God will one day complete his work of redemption, and there will be a perfect kingdom here on earth. God will not leave things crooked. He is at work. And we see that in the cross, the most crooked thing we could ever imagine. An innocent man, taking the sins of, 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 of his people, bearing that guilt and shame, that wrath, that grieving of God ought poured out on Christ who knew no sin? That's so crooked. Yeah, that's going to be a, a, a hit word. It's crooked. No, I'm just kidding. But it's, it's so crooked. You know what I mean? But taking the most crooked thing that we could ever imagine, that pain, that death, that suffering, we can see that God, in that crooked thing, to make us straight, has allowed that to happen. If God can do that, certainly, we can make the crooked things in our lives straight. and We know that he's working to make all things new, to make all things right. Next verse says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of prosperity, know that God is sovereign. God is at work. He is blessing us. He is pouring out His goodness. He is providing. He is working but also in the day adversity. God is still at work. God is still at work. We don't know what the purpose is all the time. We don't know what the future holds. Man may not find out anything that will be after him. We don't know what's going to happen, but we must trust that because of Christ, our lives are now in the hands of a powerful creator and loving father who treasures his children and is working for our good. God has made the one and the other. And you and I aren't the only ones who face these days of adversity. The Christian God came to earth to deliberately put himself in the midst of human suffering. To deliberately put himself in the midst of our brokenness and our adversity and our suffering. Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. He alone, out of all religions, became uniquely and fully human to know that firsthand. In Jesus Christ, God experienced the greatest depths of pain. Right before his death, he was deeply distressed and troubled, saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke describes Jesus before his death as being in agony and describes as a man with all the signs of being in physical shock. He even asked the Father if there was some way to avoid death. And on the cross, he cries out that God has forsaken him and he suffered a three-hour-long death by slow suffocation and blood loss. At the end of his life, Jesus was cut off from infinite love of the Father that he had from all eternity. And on the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experience, cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. Why did he do that? He came to take our sin and the wrath we deserved upon himself so that we could be free from sin's penalty and power now and completely in the future. If we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Christ, we still do not know what the answer is fully. However, we know, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us, it can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that He was willing to take it on Himself. We know that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, even in our worst sufferings. Then one day, Christ will return and renew and restore and perfect this world. Every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Christ will defeat all evil and end all suffering It will not only be ended, but so radically vanquished that what has happened will only serve to make our future life and joy infinitely greater. Let's pray. Let's uh, take this time to just remember uh, these points that, that God is, is good, that God is sovereign, that yes, it's inevitable we'll face these times, but we know that in Christ we have access to a God who is near, access to a God who came in the flesh to be in the midst of our suffering. In Christ we know that we can come to a God who one day, who's working, who has a plan, who has a story, who knows everything. He's writing that story that we may not know why and what this has to do with that. But God is at work, and we have access to a God who can comfort and assure us that He is at work, and that one day that work will be complete. And then our present sufferings, all the things that we've gone through, will, in light of our future glory, be all worth it the joy and the glory will be even greater because of the adversity we've persevered through, because of the fight we fought, because we ran hard after him rather than escaping and trying to live in the house of fools, in the house of pleasure and laughter. One day we'll see and realize that the joy of being with God in his complete and perfect kingdom will be that much better and that much sweeter. Let's uh, take this time to trust in the Lord as we go to him in prayer. And let's ask God to give us wisdom as we walk through our times of adversity. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are are with us. You You are in control. You have set the times, the good and the bad. And we may not know all the answers. But we do know that you know man. You have named all things. You have named us. You know what is good. And you are working for that good. because You are good. Help us to trust in you. Help us to take the wisdom of this teacher in Ecclesiastes and face adversity because it's better than escaping it and avoiding it. See the realities of it and fight through and learn and know and see what you're doing what you're teaching us, and to experience your presence like we would never have experienced before. Help us to face it because we know that you are at work even in those times as well as in the days that are prosperous and good. Lord, help us not to be like fools and avoid it and escape it and run away from it and just pursue a life of pleasure, a life of coasting, a life of just partying up Help us, God, to to live with wisdom. Live with the wisdom we find in Christ and the life that you're calling us to live. That is truly wise. Help us to live in that way. God, help us to trust you, cling to you. Help us to fight through, be near to us, those who are going through hard times. Lord, be near to us. Speak to us, comfort us, give us encouragement, and hope for a day that is coming because of the work of Christ where all things will be made new. Help us to look towards that outcome. That one day we will be with you. One day you will wipe away every tear. But until that time, may we still praise you, may we still trust you, may we still seek to know what you're trying to do in our lives, we would submit and learn and listen and seek you even more. God, help us, Lord. Thank you, God, that you are good and you are sovereign, and we give you praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.